right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Here we are. It is it is episode 75 of this monkey business that we're calling the science in between. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Just a couple there's a barrel of monkeys right here. A barrel of monkeys. Yeah. God. Remember that game? That was the dumbest game. It was God. I have no idea what that's all about. Yeah. literally a barrel of monkeys and you had to hook them together tail to to hand and make the longest and dude, chain you could and, yeah and wow hours of fun i feel like we should put that in show notes like <laughs> this is yeah anybody who's <clears throat> like under the age of 30 who's listening to this it's like so it's gonna what? That they was played with that they played with that it's really? like when it's like when our parents used to tell us yeah we just had like a metal hoop and a stick and we'd run down the <laughs> right. street like making the hoop roll with the stick. <laughs> right. like wait that was a game that, that's yeah. insane yeah so this is the uh the fun before the the show okay, yeah. as one one listener told me recently it just seems like that part's getting longer and longer <laughs> eventually it'll right. just be the show yeah there yeah. it is there it is uh, <laughs> let's get to joyce <laughs> <sighs> oh great so hey this is ollie and that's and scott this is scott yeah, yeah. and that's ollie yeah, and and we're talking learning progressions today. Yeah. This right, is science right? in between. Did you say that? I, I think, think I said that just a few minutes did ago. This, I said it's the monkey said... business that we're calling science in between. I oh. think that's what I said. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we can yeah. retcon that. We can figure it out. But all right. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure I said figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. So I, this is a topic that we had on our list for a few weeks because uh, it just just to say it again, we're doing some professional development across the state uh, for teachers. Um, cause th- we're in the process of rolling out new science standards, uh, yep. a- across the Commonwealth. And with that, um, comes a lot of, you know, professional development. And we, you know, we started this conversation probably like, you know, maybe about four or five episodes ago about like, what are the qualities of effective or, you know, effective professional development for teachers. And then we started to talk about a little bit about unpacking some of those standards and where they thought some, some of the struggles would happen. And then we got into the conversation about like, well, is there a learning progression for teachers? You know, cause you know, this is, we had an episode, I don't know, maybe in someplace in last year around learning progressions. And that probably is a good place for us to start is just to review what that means. Cause if you're, I don't know, if you're a teacher who's been teaching for like maybe 15 or 20 years, that might be a term that you're not familiar with. Right. Yeah. Certainly and, possible. I mean, and, especially if you're not a science teacher. I mean, right. Oh, absolutely. If you're not a science teacher, you're probably like, what, what the heck is that? Um, and, and we have some listeners out there who are science teachers, which is really cool, you know, mm-hmm. from my point of view, you know? Yes. You, know. you mean are not science teachers? Yeah. It's cool that they listen. They yeah, find I thought, this. I thought th- you said that our, our science teachers. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just not, I'm, I'm just not listening to you today. So I'm just, gonna, I, I see that. I see I, that you're like, you're, you're your, playing. your mouth, your mouth words are just <laughs> passing through my ear holes and, and yep. not entering my brain. You're, you're over there playing video games. You're playing I, you know, the monkeys, the barrel monkeys. Yeah. There, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> I just found that in my basement. I'm playing barrel <laughs> monkeys. Can't stop. I'm totally addicted. <laughs> uh, maybe we should make a phone app of barrel of monkeys. Oh gosh! You just, like hook little plastic monkeys together and try to make the longest chain. See, we're going backwards. We're going backwards. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, this is not this is not the part of the show people to turn in. I wonder if they're going to have that in in the metaverse. You know that you could do, you know, barrel of monkeys. You know, with your VR headset. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Oh boy. Okay. That would be, be great. That'd be right. so awesome. All right, learning progression. 
Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump in, man. Okay, learning progression. Let's jump in. <laughs> all right. So what first of all, what are these things? So so the reason we're even talking about them, I think, is um they they started um sort of in the the late 2000s into the early 2010s, right? There was a big move towards this idea of learning progressions, and they became a, a core part of the next generation science standards. They then NGSS were supposed to be based on learning progressions. Um, the problem being that because learning progressions were a relatively new thing, there weren't learning progressions in most areas, and I think in many areas there still are not learning progressions that are, you know, published. Um, and there's that's a whole other topic for another day. But but the idea was um, that these would be uh, articulations of patterns of the way that kids ideas develop across grade bands within big ideas. So the one that I have is have published is about play tectonics. And so the big idea is play tectonics. And you look at how do, how do kids have, what sort of initial ideas do they have? What, what areas are they in and how do they develop over time? Um, and like like everything in education the the problem with it was that people took these these characterizations these descriptions of of uh that were empirical that were based on kids you know either interviews or or some other form of data from kids um these patterns and said oh well these are now a model of cognition and so we'll use them to rate and rank and order kids and this is true for all kids everywhere and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff and that's of course when you go down a dark path in education so so taking this description with a with a clear you know articulation of the limitations of the data that it's based on um and then saying oh this is going to be always true for all time for all kids um, is, is, you know, it's like, it's like we've talked about in so many things, the scientific method grit. I mean, you can pick right. multiple intelligences, you can pick almost anything in education and people do this. Right. And it's not just an education, but of course that's what we talk about. Well, that's kind of a theme of the show, right? That's one theme of the, of the themes. Show. Of this. Yeah. Theme of the show is that, you know, there's really good ideas that get misappropriated and misused, um, throughout history. And so, you yeah. know, and I think if you go through, it probably shows up in, uh, I don't know, probably like 20% or 30% of the episodes at some point where we talk about, yeah. you know, how some original concept was misused by folks. And, and it, it always seems to be, and I think this is the way that we've talked about it in our, you know, as you say, when it comes up is it always seems to be in the same way, which is that something that's meant as a sort of, um, loose guide or heuristic or descriptive pattern, you know, CER is another one, um, becomes, gets turned into some absolute truth, some abstracted, perfected, absolute truth that then gets used to measure usually yeah, kids. Somebody, somebody has some assessment and, right. you know, then they put them on their, some sort of developmental, you know, trajectory, like, oh, right. they're only, you know, 80% there or 70% yeah. there or whatever. And or their IQ is this, which means that yeah. we have to put them in a particular kind of class or their understanding of pedagogical content knowledge is this. And so they're, you know, like all these things, the pattern is the same, like, okay, we're going to have this description and then we're going to turn it into some kind of instrument for measuring things um, based on, you know, unfortunately the idea that these abstractions are, generalizable i think that's you know so anyway we're not going to go down that path today well well i i want to uh, take a step back though because 
I've, I haven't done this kind of work. So I've, I've read the, the, you know, the research articles that relate to this, but I've never done the kind of work that, you know, kind of that develops these learning projection, uh, progressions. What does that look like? Is it just qualitative work or like, what yeah, kind well, of data? There's huge, vari- huge variability. So, um, the way that we developed ours was largely qualitative, though we did have a quantitative component ultimately. Um, but the initial learning progression. So in theory, the way that they're developed and at least the way that we developed ours was you first look at the literature, what's published, what do we know about existing um, about kids ideas in that area. And so you use that as a foundation to sort of shape your initial thinking. And then what we developed was a, uh, was a conceptual interview. So we had, we interviewed kids. We um, one-on-one had them do their explanations of play tectonics or, or, you know, a phenomenon specifically, we gave them a map and asked them to talk about like why continents look the way they did before and now, and so on. Um, Asked them to talk through what they understood about that both before and after a unit of instruction about this stuff. Um, so we did literally hundreds, I think 300 and I don't know, it was pushing 350 interviews. And these interviews wow. are like between half an hour and an hour. So these are not like little five minute. What do you think? These are pressing and probing and pushing and asking kids to draw things. And and then we analyzed all that with content experts. So we have uh, worked the project included both education folks and geoscientists and we analyzed all those interviews to look for patterns. And then based on those patterns, we ultimately developed a a relatively short multiple choice, ordered multiple choice instrument that we used on bigger data sets to try and sort of check to see whether these things, these patterns that we found um, were recognizable in a more general way, right? And we tried to do a very diverse uh, sample given the fact that we're we're in, in... most, uh, I think all of them ultimately were in Pennsylvania, but they were in a lot of different kinds of schools, suburban, rural, urban schools. Um, we tried to get as much diversity in that pool of 300 and something kids as we could, um, given the constraints of how difficult it is to interview kids individually and all blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so they're, they're, uh, you know, it took us years of work to do this thing. And ultimately it's a diagram that lives on one page of a manuscript in an article somewhere. Is it, is it a Venn diagram? Cause those it, are the best. It, it isn't. Thanks for asking. That, that would be nice. <laughs> cause no, those... it's, it's columns. Oh, because if it if it can't be uh, captured in a Venn diagram, that must not be really must, important. Must not be true or important. Yeah. If it's a three dimensional <sighs> Venn diagram, then oh. it's something special. You need to have a VR headset for that. So yes. Yeah, you have to you know jump in, get your you know Oculus out. Oh yeah, get your Oculus out. <laughs> so 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 the question for me is, you know, has that same sort of you know, um, lens been used to examine teacher development, teacher growth, um, because I can see that it can be uh, really impactful for understanding how students, you know, develop their understanding in science. But I mean, we, I mean, I guess this is where we're coming at it from or how this conversation started is, you know, we're going to be in this, in the process of really changing how people teach or working to try to change people, how people teach from, yeah. you know, very, you know, I want to say 
didactic because that is a you know that is a word that we can use to describe but i think yeah. it kind of has a sort of a negative connotation like lecture based but i think more than more than that i think the next generation science standards is more encompassing than just content right because that's a that's one of the aspects of the next yeah. generation of science standards but it's also talking about like ph- phenomenon based science right like and teaching based on on that, which I think is a real departure, you know, sense making is a real departure um, mm-hmm. from because it's in in I would say a lot of classrooms and, and a lot of science classrooms, it's still a I'm gonna as a teacher, I'm going to tell you the information. I'm gonna, or maybe it's a discovery process, you know, where but that discovery inquiry type of thing is very controlled, right? Yeah. Well, and it's um, still topic driven, right? So it's right. not phenomenon driven. It's you're, you're, it's sort of discovery, and we're using a lot of scare quotes here. Discovery right. of which they can't uh, see. They can't, they can't see our see. That's, what, that's why I'm clarifying for the sure. for the home viewers for the home. Listeners. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think um, this this shift. Well, one of the big things that we've talked about with this is. If you look at the way the NGSS performance expectations are written with this, you know, what they describe as 3D learning, there's a performance, there's a uh, science and engineering practice, a disciplinary core idea and a cross-cutting concept in every one, which means, and I think this is the thing that I teachers are, don't necessarily get right away is that means you don't meet that standard. Your kid can't meet that. Your kids can't meet that performance expectation if they're not doing the practice. So if right. it's something like developing and using a model for the, a dynamic systems earth to explain um, mountain building and other surface features of the earth, you can't just teach them plate tectonics by having them take notes and do worksheets and say, you're meeting that expectation because they didn't develop the model. It is them developing and using the model. So, um, so that's a, that's a hard thing, I think, to to say, like, you think you're meeting the standards because you're teaching the same content, but you're not meeting the standards because the standards require something more than the content. So if we were to do this, I guess, you know, thinking about how you did this with the students to, you know, examine their understanding, their development, their progressions through understanding play tectonics, how do you envision, how, do, how could we capture some of this you know, in the work that we're doing, like could, could, cause there's some of it that exists in the, in, in, in the already published literature. I mean, there yeah. are, you know, some of the resistances, some of the conceptual understandings that happen with teachers whenever they're posed with these other, these reforms, right. These reform minded pedagogies, you know, right. um, but some of it I think is, is not going to be captured there. Some of it's going to be, you know, we're going to have to collect some data on that. Yeah. I mean, well, there is, so there's a, we'll put this in the show notes, but there's a 2012 article. Um, and, uh, uh, there's a 2012 article by Winshittle. Uh, let me make sure. I think it's Winshittle Thompson. Let me get the authorship right. Yeah. Winshittle Thompson, Broughton and Stroop, um, who are the four sort of, core constituents of the, the ambitious science teaching group, um, the original group being Mark Winshittle, Jessica Thompson, and Melissa Bratton. And they wrote the book, literally, the AST book. And then David Stroop um, was sort of a later addition to that. Um, and 
that they have a 2012 article where they lay out a learning progression for teachers um, in ambitious science teaching based on the four practices, the big ideas, eliciting, um, sort of advancing students thinking and pressing for explanations. So they've done a, a, a learning progression, you know, almost 10 years ago for this. Um, I think it probably needs updating um, and, and uh, for example, doesn't include some of the things that you and I are going to be thinking about as part of this professional development, which is things like, um, you know, culturally responsive or equity focused pedagogies. Um, they didn't have that explicitly as part of that original um, framework for developing this. But, you know, there there is a, a beginning process to this or a jumping off point for us to use um, to talk about how how teachers learn some of these things, because I think one of the things that this gets at that we've talked about before is there's this multi-layer problem, right? Like you want kids to engage in a certain kind of set of practices in classrooms. Like that's what the NGSS defines. The NGSS says this is how science learning environment should work, the kind of things that kids should do. But to do that, there are new kinds of teaching practices and that's a layer up and that's the ambitious science teaching. Um, they're trying to characterize uh, the the kinds of practices that teachers should be engaged in to create learning environments where kids do this kind of stuff. And then we're the layer above that, which is teacher education. So how do we as teacher educators make choices and design learning environments where teachers can learn to teach science in ways that then will um, allow students to engage in the kind of practices that they need to engage in? So there's so there's that. Um, so I think, yeah, we one of the things we have to think about um, is how do we as teacher educators gather data that can help us um, better understand the patterns of, um, of how teachers learn, right? I mean, I think that's what we're really talking about. And, um, and so I think we, we need to think about that. I think, you know, it, it makes a lot less sense, I think, with teachers to do conceptual interviews, for example, right? That's not going to be a very productive way to, um, to understand this because that's how teachers talk about the way they teach, which right. we, we have a long history of knowing the way they talk about the way they teach is not at all the same as how they teach. Yeah, that, that's, that's been pretty consistent in, in the research is that we, we all talk one way and then, well, not all of us, but, you know, we... There's a lot of teachers who say, you know, my class is like this. And then you go look at it and it's nothing like that. And um, there's this big, huge study that was done a bunch of years ago that I wrote about in my blog um, that was around active learning. And they talked yeah. to all these college professors about like active learning. All my classes, you know, all, has active learning all the time. And then they did a, you know, uh, an observation of those classrooms and active learning wasn't present in the majority of them. Yeah. And so. Yeah, so there's a real disconnect between how we talk about our practices and what we do. I, I like the the that um, the Winchell stuff that you shared um, because I think that it uh, I hadn't seen that before. So this oh, is okay. yeah, because yeah. I think that really like it captures, and I think that seeing it you know laid out um, really sh shows the change in how the teacher per. Uh, perceives the the processes in the classroom from 
what the students are contributing and what they're contributing and, the, and their moves, their discourse moves, especially yep. in terms of helping them, you know, talk about the, uh, the, the topics and talk about the content because it's, it's, you know, like, um, you know, the, so the one talks about pre- pressing for explanation and the trajectory mm-hmm. goes from no press for a scientific explanation to a what happened explanation to a, uh, a partial why what happened type of thing to a ca- something causal, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool to see how that progression happens. Um, and that's something that we can um, hopefully uh, draw upon as we start to do some of this professional development. Yeah, no, I think, I think it'll be useful. And I do think, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it, hopefully I think sharing this with teachers also helps them understand, um, the differences between the way that they may think about something like pressing for an explanation and what we're actually talking about when we're talking about pressing for an explanation, right? So this is, this goes back to that idea of like teachers or anybody saying like, oh yeah, I already do that. Right. I've got this sorted out. Like when I ask for kids explanations all the time, you do. Well, let's talk about what that means. Like what, when you say you're asking for kids to explain things, what do you mean? And, and, you know, maybe they say, maybe they say something really sophisticated, like, wow. Yeah. We, we had this unit that was designed around a, a local phenomenon where the, the fish in our pond were dying. And so we tried to figure that out and we did all this data collection and kids were building an explanation or they say, well, I asked kids, you know, what the definition of photosynthesis was. And they explained to me what photosynthesis was. And I'm like, okay, so there you go. So our notions of explanation have to be uh, talked through. Right. Um, And I think these tools like this uh, provide an opportunity to, uh, to let people do that, to have that conversation. But I do think, um, yeah, we've got we've got a lot of work ahead of us, right? It's going to be um, it's it's a big ask. It is, and I think that the the other thing, and, and I don't know if you mentioned this, but I think it's being presented as a self assessment tool, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where some of the power can happen. Is that it's like the, I mean, the title of it is "Where's my practice located?" Right? Yeah, it's right. like so it's it's you know really you know fosters that self-assessment in teachers to say, okay, well, where am I on this continuum? And I think for, you know, some, all teachers are going to look at themselves and see themselves along one end of this continuum and say, okay, well, Mm -hmm. if the next generation science standards are, are promoting this and I'm here. And I think just the, the, the fact that they're framing it from a discourse perspective, I think is novel for some teachers because it's, you know, there's not a lot of dialogic classrooms like where like they're based mm-hmm. on having a dialogue in the classroom. Right. Yeah. Agreed. And and I also like that, you know, to your point, what they call it is a performance progression. So they don't right. call it a learning progression. Right. They call it a performance. So <clears throat> this is how, to, how to, how do you perform as a teacher? Um, but I think, you know, we might be able to pop up here for a second and talk about this on a, on a 10,000 foot view sort of, uh, perspective because not everybody, um, I mean, not everybody who are amongst our thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of listeners, uh, <laughs> are, uh, are science educators or science teachers, right? So, this idea of um, that, like, how do you get better at something, right? Like, and, and I think, you know, there, there's this, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, bless his heart, 
um, you know, with with things like outliers naming the 10,000 hours rule and all this has become like a meme and now everyone believes it. But I think, you know, one of the important things about learning is that you you have to have structured, focused and organized practice. It can't just be, you know, you can you can't just practice it because lots of teachers practice teaching and they don't get any better at it because part of what makes you better at it is to be analytical of your practice and find areas where you are weak, identify those areas and work on them to get better at them. But even that is tricky because it's like, well, what areas are you weak? Like, how are you comparing yourself? What's your criteria for deciding I'm weak at something? I think what this progression does is it gives you a framework to to think about where you're weak, like what, where are areas I can improve and it gives you structure to that. And I think that sort of structured practice is what is missed in that 10,000 hour rule, because it's not just practicing the really, the people who get really great at stuff they do are analytical about what it is they need to get better at in terms of some specific goal. And obviously if you're an athlete or something like that, that's easier with teaching. It's a little mushier to figure out what good means. Right. But, but this gives a framework for that. So I think that's where the value of this comes is it provides a a framework for, for teachers in this case, to look at their own practice and say, how well am I doing it? And that gives me an area now to focus on. How would I move as a teacher from focusing on topics or things to focusing on observable processes? Like that's, that's a step in the progression. So how do I think about that? What is something I could do to actively engage myself to, to move forward in that area? I think that the critical part is something you just said is to, to look at their teaching. Right. I think the critical part about this is not that we have them reflect on their teaching, you know, okay. Because I think this is one of the conversations I've had with numerous people around like a a variety of topics in in, in teacher education, Mm -hmm. dispositions being one of them. Um, The difference between belief and performance. Right. In a lot of cases, I, I, I don't really care how, what people believe in. Right. I really care about what they, how they perform in a classroom setting, yeah. right? And they could espouse all sorts of teacher set, uh, student centeredness, right? And yeah. but if they go into a classroom and they're not teaching in a student centered way, then who cares what they believe, right? Yeah. And and I would think that the, um, although the opposite doesn't feel always good, you know, if they're like they espouse like all sorts of like I believe in teacher centered classroom, you know, and all that, but then they go in and teach, you know, in a very student centered way, you know, I think we're I'm okay with that, you know. Yeah. I'm okay with that, you know. Yeah, I mean it get, it gets at this fundamental issue of what does it even mean to believe something outside of the context of engaging in that practice, right? Right. And this we've talked about this in various forms, but this idea of like abstract knowledge when it comes to practice, like, oh, I believe in student-centered classrooms. Well, what does that mean right. if what you do in a classroom isn't that? Right. It just means that you have learned some words that you can speak back in a particular context, which maps across all sorts of areas we talk about all the time. Right. It's like, do you do you really want people to just memorize mouth words and repeat them back to you? Because we've got a system for that and it sucks. Right. (laughs) So let's think about not doing that. Let's think about a way where we actually change the way people do what they're doing. Um, So, yeah, I think that's you know, that's old. There's old literature back 
like from the eighties about the, the disconnect between beliefs and practice. And I think at that point it was like, isn't this interesting? And I think now I, I think I, you, many people would look at that and say, actually, that's not very interesting because it's not a surprise that people, when they're talking to professionals who want to know how they teach are going to characterize their teaching in a way that they think makes them sound good, even if that isn't what they actually do. So yeah, cycling back to this, though, that that I think the critical part here is to use this this rubric, if we're going to call it a rubric, although mm-hmm. I, I, I just mm-hmm. kind of threw up a little yeah. bit in my yeah. mouth saying right. it. It's OK. It's OK. Yeah. I, I saw you that I saw you kind of like, you know, the face of Flinch. disgust. I flinched. Yeah. That's oh. what I did. Like, ugh. yeah. I, I yeah I listened to a podcast this morning on on disgust and you had that uh, face of disgust like uh, yeah, uh. and yeah but if we're using it some sort of like uh, we'll call it an, an assessment let's call it an assessment rather than a rubric okay a self assessment all right you okay with that nope but carry nope. on all I, right I know what you mean Ali so I'm with you in what you mean I just you know like uh, okay carry on but it, it's got to be connected to it like observation. So we're either going to have to have them record a lesson or a view a lesson they've done somehow to be able to actually look at themselves, teach, yeah. and then apply this to apply this, these, I don't want to call them standards, these progressions mm-hmm. is because yeah. all of those make us feel like it's like standards, assessments, rubrics, yeah. it's all a, of that. It's a description, right? It's a, it's right. a description of a, of the way practice can develop. It does. It's not a guarantee. It doesn't mean that all teachers will do this. It's a description and it is useful. And I think, you know, if we're talking sociocultural theory, what we would say is this is a material representation of practice. This is an (laughs) externalization. I know that's that's I, not somebody out there. I know. I know. Somebody, somebody out, out there, there threw up in their mouth. Their mouth right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's your problem. If you don't, if you don't like my mouth words, you go. Oh, this no, I'm okay no, no, it. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the person who just threw up in their mouth. That person need not listen to the podcast. You don't want to listen to this. <laughs> you're just, throw, you're we, just like casting aside our listeners. I'm telling like you, that. man, now that we're at hundreds of thousands of <laughs> listeners, I don't care anymore about it, about that individual guy out there who's thrown up in his mouth when I say material yeah. representation practice. So Uh the reason I say that is because these things always have to be reinterpreted. Like that's the point, right? This isn't meant to be a static thing that is always true. It is a thing that can be used in a context with a group of people to say, okay, let's talk as a group. Let's talk about what does it mean to focus on topics and things versus focusing on observable processes? How might we manifest that in our practice? What, what kinds of ways would we look for the differences between those things then let's go back to our classrooms, see what we see, and then come back together and talk again, right? So I think these externalizations, this writing down of stuff is an important part of the way that communities operate, but it isn't like the writing down of stuff by by these four folks as part of their project means that this is a true thing that must be true in all cases and doesn't require interpretation. That's just the, that's the problematic bit when we start thinking about it as, and that's why I flinch when I hear rubric or assessment or instrument, because the implication is, yeah, the implication is that it, that, that, that instrument is fixed, right. In the, in the way that a ruler is fixed. Right. And then I, I know from your perspective, I was doing, I was falling victim to what we are saying about everybody else. No, no, no. 
misusing it. And I was just more describing it. I was yeah. just like describing it as a thing. Right. Yes. That's and, why I was. That's why I said I was concern is The concern is as we call it that thing, whether we call it an assessment or call it a rubric, then it becomes standardized and then it becomes this thing that gets misused. I get yep. I get what you're saying. I completely yep. agree with it. But more, I was calling it from like, if we're going to call it this thing, like something, yep. we have to call it something. We have to right? call it something, I guess. Right. And yep. and and rubric and assessment have these, you know, has has baggage. It all has this baggage. And yeah. Well, so. that's, you know, and, and this goes back to another theme of the show. Like it's, it, it's maybe not even fair to say it's baggage. It's just the nature of human language, right? Like words have meanings and those meanings shift over time and they get appropriated by things and by people, right? So assessment and rubric, when they were developed, maybe they meant something very different. Maybe they meant something more descriptive and open than they do now, but they don't really mean that anymore. Now, rubric means how do I take something that is difficult to give a quantitative value to and give it a quantitative value in a systematic way that supposedly then it makes it more fair. Well, maybe, I don't know. It seems like your, your assessment of kids work should be contextual, not, not uh, arbitrary and linked to some instrument predetermined instrument. So, <laughs> so there we are. I like the, 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 the way you accentuate the end the, there. The raspberry. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Yeah. Very scientific. Thank you. Know? you. That's, I, I like to think of that as my mature way to have an uh, intellectual, intellectual engagement on a topic is when I'm sure. done, I just make raspberry. All right. To, to stick the, stick the landing. Yeah, I really, yeah, that's what I did. I stuck the landing. Nice. Nice work. Thanks. All right. All right. right. So I think we, we have, um, I don't know, we've shed some light to this, right? Yeah. Do we, do we have like, do we have, let's, let's each try to like have a, have a summary statement here. Cause we, we, you know, as, as is our want, we rambled and roamed a little. So maybe we can come back to, uh, to what, what we think the takeaways of this uh, momentous episode are. <laughs> well, I, I, I think for me, it's, it's um, I mean, we, we, you brought this, I don't know, this perspective on it in terms of how teachers can progress in terms of their performance. And I think that could be a useful tool for us to mm-hmm. think about like what we're doing with teachers. Um, and I think that the perspective, if we f- use it as a resource with our, our, our teachers, um, that it can help them develop in terms of their process. Although I do think that probably some additional work is going to ne- be needed to examine this a little bit more. And that, um, cause I think that it's, it captures it to an extent, but does it capture it for all teachers? And I think that we'll have to maybe look at some of the, um, some of the ways our teachers that are going to be participating in our professional development, some of the resistance and some of the developments they go through, um, mm-hmm. because that might help to broaden this perspective a bit. But it does give us some, you know, gives us a, a way of approaching that. Um, yeah, no, I think I think that's right, and I think this is, um, you know, our our my takeaway or the thing that I would like people to take away from this is the idea that, you know, professional learning like we're arguing for um, student learning is a community activity that involves negotiation of meaning. And our job as teacher educators is to structure that process. Um, and this tool can help with that, right? It can, it can give structure to a conversation about what does it mean to get better at teaching in ways that will 
we'll have right. our students participate in NGSS like learning in our classrooms, as opposed to some abstracted notion of like, oh, well, inquiry is good. What does inquiry look like? Well, you know, that ship sailed and didn't sail in the direction we hoped it would. Uh, I'm not saying this is going to be better, but I think we have to continue to to have these conversations and recognize that learning is about those conversations. It's not about rolling out the new standards and assuming that that's going to be the thing that changes practice. Like the thing that changes practice is having hard, deep, rich conversations with people in a community context to say, what do we mean by this? Like when we say 3d learning, what are we really talking about? And, and I think, um, you know, tools like learning progressions can be useful to guide those, those conversations. Cool. 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 I was waiting for you to do the raspberry to stick the landing, but no, I don't do, do I know I did it earlier. I feel like did I it. once, it. once a show, right. Is that it? I don't know. I feel like I did it more than once. Even I, it's, it's yeah. I think, I think we just move along into joy yeah. because All right. that's where we are. Well, I, I got a good one. It's a, it's a movie. All right. I'm just going to jump right in. All right. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a movie out on Amazon prime right now called the tender bar. Mm. And uh, it's about a uh, a boy who grows up in a bar. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen Ben Affleck. This. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's he's the he's the uncle. So his, you know the boy kind of gets raised by his uncle Charlie, who you know because the dad's kind of out of the picture. Um, he doesn't really have a father figure in his life, and Uncle Charlie. Ben Affleck is the guy who takes over that role. And so the the kid spends a lot of time in this bar in the seventies and it's a memoir. So it's a, it's a, uh, a true story. That's uh, the the kid ultimately becomes a a writer. Um, I'm not giving away the ending because if you know anything about the, you know, it's narrated right from the beginning. Um, But beyond it being a really beautiful, touching movie um, with a lot of good acting, Ah, uh, the soundtrack is just awesome because it's um, all like this. It's all like that. It's all the seventies music that, you know, we've been talking about how much I love and, you know, uh, there's some like Jim Croce in it. Some, yeah, it's just like, mm. it's great. So um, it's all playing in the background because, you know, it, they're in a bar they're and the bar. dad is a, is a DJ. So the, the dad who's kind of like out of the picture is a DJ. And so the kid is trying to connect with the dad through listening to, you know, his dad being on the radio and so, oh, okay. so yeah so music plays a big part of of this you know so yeah it's just it's just really and i suspect that it'll be up for some academy awards if if and maybe just for ben affleck but even even if just with that i mean i would i would think it could get you know maybe best picture i don't know i don't know if it rises to that level but it's, a, yeah. it's an entertaining movie okay yeah i will add it to my list yeah yeah and it's free on amazon prime right now free well, is it free though? It's pre you've prepaid for it if you have Amazon Prime. Right. Well, right. yeah. Yeah. It's part of the package. Yeah. Yeah. Free on Amazon Prime if you paid for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have Amazon Prime. It's like one of those things. That things and Netflix, you can you can be pretty right. confident that folks have those. But you're right. I wouldn't say it's free on Netflix, right? Although not everything is free on Amazon Prime. You have to like, but everything is free on Netflix. Everything's paid for in advance. Right. So you have access. There's no pay level 
for Netflix. Right. You know, whereas you have to, like on, rent individual things on Netflix. Right. But like Apple Plus, Apple TV yeah. Plus, you have to rent some stuff on yeah. there. And same thing with Amazon Prime, you have to rent stuff on that. This is free. Okay. We're just we're not we're done with that conversation, but yes, free. It's free I'm just, if you pay for it. it. Right. <laughs> All right. Fully prepaid. <laughs> what like, I, you know, my my parents, God love them. They're they're in one of those uh um you know transitional living places where they and and there's like a main building they're living in like a little uh cottage or something. And <clears throat> they get brunch on Sunday in the main building as part of living in this community. And and I always joke with them about, they're like, oh yeah, it's our free brunch. And I was like, it's not a free brunch. You've already paid for it. <laughs> You've just paid for it yeah. and you can eat it or not, but. But it's not free. It's not free. That was a fun conversation. I'm sure the, <laughs> the, the th- tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of listeners are, are wrapped in their seat about the difference. They're, they're going to say episode 75 was their favorite episode of all time. <laughs> episode 75 was the one where I gave up on those idiots. <laughs> I just couldn't take it anymore. Uh, all right. All right. You, you have any joys? Or no, I, my joy is just talking about prepaid versus free with you, Ali. That's what oh, come on. You got something else. No, I got something else. Uh, I got a book that I just finished. Um, this book is called Your Mind on Plants by Michael Pollan, who is a food and sort of food and science writer. I don't know how you characterize him. I, I first came to him through the omnivores dilemma, which is uh, a great, that book. was in my disgust. That was in my disgust episode this morning. The, the omnivores, oh, the, the, the omnivores dilemma. Yeah. Yes. That was in there. Yeah. yeah. Cause disgust comes back to like edible. Every, yeah. all the disgust from, yeah. yeah, it's all from edible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so he's written lots of books about sort of our, you know, he had wrote botany of desire. He's written a, a bunch of, um, sort of books about humans' relationships to plants, basically. He's sort of a gardener. Well, he's not sort of a gardener. He's a gardener, and he writes about these relationships. So Your Mind on Plants is about plants that have a, a psychoactive effect on human beings that we have various levels of historic relationships with. So he picks three um, for, and he explains the reasons for this uh, in the book. It's not a very long book, but... Um, the three that he chooses are he chooses um, caffeine, opium, and mescaline. So um, one, the opium is the first one actually, and he talks about that. And he chooses that because it, there's a complicated um, history with that long history, but complicated history with humans and how it was originally used, and then how it was, you know, concentrated and turned into. Um, you know, obviously heroin, but then he, he, this is a real relatively contemporary book. So he can talk about the, um, he can talk about the oxycodone problem with opioids. And, um, so it's, so that one's fascinating. Um, and then caffeine, which as a, as a sort of religious coffee drinker, I found that one really, uh, interesting, um, just the relationship that we have with coffee and how relatively new it is, especially, well, just in human history, but particularly in, in Western thought, but how how it's impacted the evolution of, of uh, human society. 
And then lastly, mescaline, which is a, you know, a psychedelic. Um, and, and he talks about that, um, largely in terms of its religious use, but he talks about it in a broader sense as well. Um, but it's fascinating. And, and I think one of the things he, he pushes on, which I always find interesting as a, as a sciencey nerd is this coevolution between humans and, and other things. And, and he particularly talks about this with opium and coffee in that those, those plants are, have been massively cultivated by humans. And, uh, and so one of his arguments is this is that caffeine, for example, um, its properties actually improve its chances of spreading. It's basically a, a Darwinian evolutionary advantage, right? To have caffeine as part of, of your plant. Um, and he talks about, you know, flowering plants having caffeine in them, and that increases the likelihood that bees will come to that, to those plants because it makes them addicted essentially. So anyway, fascinating book, um, really interesting, uh, dig into humans relationship with plants and nature in general. And, uh, and he's just a good writer and tells good stories. So yeah. Sounds awesome. It yeah. Is. I, I, I hadn't really heard of the omnivores dilemma until today. And then oh, to hear it like, you know, twice in a few hours is pretty cool. You know? It's a fantastic book. It's if I was going to choose, actually, I might even choose that. That's the better of the two books, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, Mike. Well, it was the, the, the whole concept of that was developed by somebody studying disgust. Mm, Right. 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 So it was this, this guy Rosen from the university of Pennsylvania, who was the guy who studied disgust and came and he was the one who proposed that it all comes from, eating like and whether something would make us sick or not yeah fascinating it's just fascinating all right we digress but that happens hey well episode 75 in the books look at us look at us here we are and there we go yeah catch you next time in between see you then bye now bye now